Welcome back, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy Feast of the Assumption for those. I know I have a lot of non-Catholic listeners um, and watchers, but for those of us um, that are Catholic, today we celebrate the Feast of the Assumption and celebrate uh, Mary and her Assumption into Heaven and reminding us of the dignity of the human body and our our destiny one day, hopefully, that God willing, we too will be body and soul in heaven with Christ. So a big day today, lots to celebrate, and we are going to be looking at season two, episode six of The Chosen. So season two, episode six of The Chosen, and it's simply entitled Unlawful. So today we're going to look at sort of two interpretations of that. I think both storylines draw from that word. And then at the end of our discussion, we are going to kind of wrap those two storylines together. And if you guys follow me on social media, you saw that I would assign homework if I was teaching this in a class. And so we'll talk a little bit about the homework I would assign at the end of this episode if I was really teaching you all and grading you. Um, So let's jump in. Season two, episode six, Unlawful. Let's start with prayer today on Our Lady's Feast. Let's pray together the Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, there is a lot going on in this episode, and part of me almost would rather have this be two separate episodes. I feel like we have a lot of, we have like two in some ways, two separate storylines, but I think they do come together with this idea of unlawful that we'll talk about at the end. Um, but even to have two shorter episodes, I think there's just a lot to deal with in this. And at first I thought these, these two storylines don't really have anything to do with the, each other, but I think they do in, in reflection. So I can see why this is all in this unlawful episode. So what we're going to do is we're going to skip the intro. We're going to come back to that opening scene because I want to treat the Mary storyline and then we'll treat the Sabbath storyline and then we'll kind of wrap those together. So there's some other things that were going on in the episode. We saw a little bit more with, um, you know, we saw a little bit more with like Simon and we saw some some talk, talk talking between John and, J- and Big James. Um, but because there's so much going on in this episode, I just want to kind of concentrate on those those two big storylines. And so if you have questions about anything else that I don't cover, be sure to put them in the chat as we begin to wrap up, as we get close to that hour, um, because at the end I'll take any questions. And I'll try to keep an eye on the chat as we go to see if there are any questions. But I'm just going to really concentrate on those two storylines, because again, it was a very, I think it was a pretty packed episode, even though... I think there wasn't a lot going on as much. There was just a lot to talk about, I think. Um, So let's start with the Mary storyline that we started a couple episodes ago. Last episode, we really saw it come to a head with her, um, her trauma, her doubt going into that spiral of that she didn't know how to handle. She didn't, she began to feel guilt. She began to feel shame and she left. Um, And so of course we then have Jesus sending Matthew and Peter after her. Um, And so it doesn't take long really to kind of, in a sense, wrap up that storyline in that Matthew and Peter bring Mary back. Um, And so we see that, um, you know, Mary's in the bar, right? So we see, I think there was a lot of worry, like what is going to happen with Mary? And so we see that when she fell, she really went back to her former life, meaning she went back to a bar, started gambling, drinking. She's clearly intoxicated. 
Um, but I thought it was really beautiful in that moment. Um, first of all, I love the fact that she's like winning all the money away from these guys. Um, but notice she left the money behind when she left. Um, we don't have Jesus like living off this ill-gotten gain. Um, so she leaves the money behind, even though the disciples really could use it, right? They need it for, to buy food. Anyway, she's at the bar and I thought it was beautiful as she began to look around to the men and they were treating her badly, right? Like she was even scared of them. She had this fear they were going to abuse her. And, um, you know, you could just tell that she looked around and she realized that the, the men, it's like she had brothers and Dallas talks about this in his recap of the episode. It was when she like looked around and saw those men that she realized there are men out there that really care about her. There are men out there that really love her, the disciples. And she shouldn't be sitting with these men. She should be sitting with her brothers. She should be sitting with Matthew and Simon and 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 Philip. And and so that, um, and I, I, you know, they don't overtly say that, but I, I could sense it as she looked at the different men. And that's really the key that Dallas gave her, gave the actress when she played that, that, you know, think about the men you should be sitting here with. And so she leaves. Um, and I, I really loved that. Um, you know, Matthew and Peter are sent out looking for her. And I teased on social media that I feel like there was a scene that was very Catholic. And this whole storyline, I just feel is very, very Catholic because it's Matthew and Peter that are concerned about her and then go out to get her. Um, and that's what we're all called to do, right? We're called to look out for our fellow brothers and sisters. You know, our journey in sanctification is not a me and Jesus journey but it's a body of Christ journey and that we're all in this together. And that's why we worship as a body. And that's why we are baptized into the body of Christ. That when you, you look at these, the people that make up the church, we care about them, right? They're our brothers and sisters and we're all on this journey together. And so Matthew and Peter go out to find Mary. Um, you know, Rama kind of struggles with why doesn't Jesus go find her, right? Rama says to the blessed mother, like if Jesus's time has come, why doesn't he bring Mary back? And um, Dallas has said, you know, Rame is kind of the audience surrogate. Like, we are asking those same questions, right? Why is Jesus allowing Mary Magdalene to suffer? Why isn't he doing something to stop this? And and part of it is, you know, and notice how patient the Blessed Mother is with Rama, and I love that, right? Um, answering her questions, not dismissing her questions, but answering her questions and walking her through this mystery of suffering, right? We don't know, like the Blessed Mother says, like, we don't know why Jesus does the things he does or why he allows the things he does. But what I thought was so beautifully Catholic in the scene was, I think it really depicts the communion of saints. You know, when we talk about as Catholics, the communion of saints, we're really talking about the body of Christ. Um, you know, Paul calls us saints here on earth because we are called to be saints. So we have this church, you know, militant that's suffering, that's, um, that's, that's working here on earth and trying to bring others to Christ. We have the church suffering in purgatory that's praying for us and wants us to be successful, right? Like wants us to win this fight with Christ. And then we have the church triumphant in heaven and the bonds of love don't end in death. And so our, our familial bonds don't end in death. We are all one family on earth and in heaven and all we're all working together. And so I loved how, you know, I'm sure like all of us as Catholics are asked, like, why not go straight to Jesus, right? Why do you mess with the communion of saints? Why do you ask saints for intercession? Why do you ask the Blessed Mother for intercession when you can go straight to Jesus? And here we have so beautifully depicted, Jesus doesn't go find her. He sends Peter 
He sends Simon. He sends Matthew. That we're all in this together. That God desires our participation in the plan of God. He will not save us against our wills, right? He'll never save us against our wills. But he also wants others to participate in our sanctification, right? Christ has redeemed us. But sanctification, that growth in holiness, is a lifelong process. And there are many people involved in that process. So Jesus, could have Jesus have gone to Mary? Of course. But he desires Matthew and Peter to play a part in that mysterious bringing back of Mary, right? And so I love that, right? I love, and then of course, when she does come back, who brings her to Jesus? Because she's, she's scared of Jesus the judge, even though Jesus has never given her a reason to be scared. She's scared. She knows she's, she thinks she's disappointed him. And so who brings Mary Magdalene to Jesus but Our Lady? Could Mary Magdalene go straight to Jesus? Absolutely. But Mary brings her to Jesus. And so I think it was a very, very Catholic scene in that we have all these instances. Could Jesus do this? Of course. Do we need the saints? Jesus desires us to need the saints. He desires us to go through the Blessed Mother. It's not that we that Jesus is powerless, but that he desires our participation. So I hope that that makes sense. But I saw this as a very um, a beautiful depiction of the communion of saints, of the intercession of the Blessed Mother, that we all work together for our sanctification um, in God's mysterious will, right? Um, and so... I mean, was there a more touching moment where when Mary is in her darkest, right, in her deepest, of course, she's, you know, it's been worse for her, right? She used to be possessed by the devil, right? She's not possessed by a demon here, but she feels like she's turned her back on the Lord. She feels like she's failed. And wasn't it amazing when she was sitting there and she says, he already fixed me once and I broke again. He already fixed me once. I broke again. I can't face him. Like, I don't know about you, but have you had those moments where you're just so angry that you've sinned again, that you've fallen into the same bad habits, and you're standing in that confession line thinking, I can't do this. Like, will he forgive me? How often can I stand in this confession line and confess the same sin? I broke, I broke again. I thought that was such, such, such a moving line. Um, and it's through Matthew's own recognition of his own sinfulness, right? So he still hasn't apologized, but we see a human Matthew coming out and Peter sees it. And, and Peter and Matthew together remind Mary of her goodness, right? Um, Jesus saved you to do all of these things. And then Matthew helps her despite his own revulsion, right? It's almost like his own, right? He was gagging when he had the manure on him. And now he helps Mary even through her own sickness. And um, Dallas commented on this Peter Matthew beautiful moment that he says, whenever we're forced to see someone as human, walls begin to break. You know, it's so easy for us to... Um, abstract somebody like this person's a bad guy this person did something bad and we abstract them and we make them less human um, and it's easy to hate somebody it's easy in a sense it's also easy to love someone when they're an abstraction right but it's when their humanness comes through to us and we're faced to we're forced to face someone as a human that those walls break down and that's what's happening with Peter and Matthew Peter's beginning to see Matthew as a human and I love that
right? So, so yes, I really love this scene. Um, Mary takes Mary Magdalene, right? Mother Mary takes Mary Magdalene to Jesus. And yes, there's no sin too great. There's no sin too great. And, you know, she says, I don't know what to say. And Jesus says, I don't require much. Isn't that the beauty? All God wants is us to say, I'm sorry, I screwed up, right? That's all he asks. Um, even imperfect contrition, right? Even sorrow because we're, we're scared is a good enough for him. He just wants us to be sorry and express that sorrow. And she says, I owe you everything. I just don't think I can do it. Live up to it. Repay you. I didn't even come back on my own. They had to come get me. I just can't live up to it. This was confession. Like, didn't you just, like, this is the most beautiful depiction of the sacrament of confession, right? He says, well, that's true. You can't live up to it, right? We can't be perfect without Christ, but you don't have to. I just want your heart. The Father just wants your heart. Give us that. Did you really think you'd never struggle or sin again? I love, 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 love the storyline because we're seeing a disciple fall in a minor way, right? She didn't deny Christ. She didn't hand him over to the Romans. You know, sometimes we think, oh, the, you know, the apostles were perfect except that one time when they did really bad things. Well, no, they were human, so they fell. And we see this as that falling. She comes and he says, I just want you you know, I just want your heart. He says, I'm just so sorry. That's all that was required, right? And then he says, look up. Look at me. I forgive you. It's over. And then that hug, right? Oh my gosh. That's confession. That's the sacrament of confession. When you go and you you don't even have words and you all you can say is, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I'm a, you know, I'm a wretch. Sorry. And the Lord's like, look up. I just want your heart. You're forgiven. It's over. And then that hug, right? Such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene. So really one of my, I think one of the most Catholic scenes in the entire um, series and just so beautiful, right? It's over, right? Start anew. Start anew. Um, so often it's us that, Jackie, you're absolutely right. We forget that after we confess, right? It's it's that it's like we hold on to our sin, right? We hold on to our sin more than Christ does sometimes, right? Like Christ wants us to move on. He wants us to be born anew and refreshed and leave that confessional. Absolutely, Jamie, that absolution joy. You know, so often, I think sometimes when I go to confession, I have like put penance on myself for thinking I'm a terrible person or I can't believe I've done that and I get myself all agitated. And then I go into confession and I confess and the priest has those beautiful words for me and then he absolves me and I leave. And there's that beautiful joy of freedom, knowing, knowing that we're forgiven not having to wrestle with it anymore. And I think, why did I put myself through all that? <laughs> like the Lord want, is just waiting to forgive us. And so often we put ourselves through that agony. And he's like, I just want to give you a hug. Can you just come say you're sorry and I'll give you a hug? And it's just, it's really beautiful. So so that's what I just, I kind of wanted to cover with, um, with Mary. I just think it's a really beautiful scene. So let's go back to, um, Jackie, you almost feel lighter. Absolutely. Right. Oh, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Is there? Mm, yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the opening scene. And there's a lot here, um, that I want to break down for us. So what's happening in this opening scene? What are we referencing? What part does it play later in the episode? So, 
Um, at the beginning, we have this this real place, Nob, Nob, Nob in Israel in, in, in 1008, um, 1008, 1008. Um, and it's this is actually a scene, almost word for word, out of First um, Samuel. So we have this scene, and notice the, the father. This isn't in scripture, but the father says, that's why I must teach Abiathar to make the showbread. So we, have, we already know, okay, we have this Abiathar. He's the, he's the son in the scene. We have something called showbread. And then Amalek, Ahamalek, Ahamalek. I can't say all these Hebrew names, so I'm butchering it. So if somebody knows Hebrew, they just know that I'm butchering most of these names. Um, so he's the father. Okay, so he's going to teach his son how to make the showbread. So what the heck is happening? Well, the showbread is a really beautiful Sabbath sacrifice that very few people talk about. And it's a shame because it's um, there's a lot to unpack and there's more that I can unpack in this discussion. And so I'm going to recommend a book for you. And that book is Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E, for those of you listening on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Brant Petrie, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. There's an entire chapter in Jesus on the, in the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist on this idea of the showbread. And again, it's not something we generally hear about and we generally talk about. We talk a lot about Passover, we talk a lot about manna, but we don't talk a lot about this, um, this sacrifice, this bread that's present in the Old Testament. You can find it mentioned in Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. Leviticus 24, 5 to 9. And I'm not going to read it, but we're talking all about the temple. We're talking all about, well, what would be the tent of meeting first, the tabernacle, because they didn't have the temple, right? So God's giving the law, and he's telling Moses, you know, the different feasts, and then he's telling him what to put in the tent, and he talks about bread for the tabernacle in Leviticus 24. And this is what's known as the show bread, or it's often translated the bread of the presence. And it's bread that sat on the altar with a sacrificial libation of wine. So we have the special bread sitting on this altar in the Holy of Holies. And it's the bread of the presence because it sat in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So translated literally, interestingly enough, this is actually called bread of the face or bread of the faces. And the Jews saw it as a earthly representation of the face of God, which seems a little strange to us, but just stick with it. This is one of those things that I don't think we can fully wrap our minds around without its fulfillment. So we're going to get there. But um, Aaron is to offer this bread perpetually to the Lord as a sign of the covenant that the Lord made with his people. So again, Leviticus 24, five to seven has this, you know, these 12 loaves, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And each Sabbath, the bread is to be eaten by the priests and then it's new bread takes its place. So every week we have new bread and bread is eaten by the priests. So this, this bread of the presence, this show bread, whenever it's taken out of the Holy of Holies, which happens three times a year, a veil is placed over this bread because it was a holy thing. Um, it was actually um, really rare for anything to be taken out of the Holy of Holies and shown to the people. But remember in episode four, when we talked about the three pilgrimage feasts, that there were three times where all Jewish men were required to go up to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. On those occasions, we read in the Talmud, which is the rabbinic writings, 
Um, the Talmud tells it, Talmud tells us that the priests during this time would take the bread of the presence out of the Holy of Holies. Okay, so first let's just think. This is bread and wine sitting on a special altar in the presence of the Lord. Actually, the menorah would be lit next to it at all times. Does this sound familiar to anybody practicing Catholics? And then uh, three times a year, the... Um, and. Exodus talks about the, 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 the men would go and literally translated on pilgrimage that would go to see the face of God. Well, what the rabbinic writings tell us is that during these pilgrimage feasts, the bread of the presence would actually be taken out of the Holy of Holies and lifted up to the people. And this is what the Talmud says. They used to lift it up and exhibit the bread of the presence on those who came up for the festivals, saying to them, behold, God's love for you. Because that bread was a sign of the covenant. That bread was a sign of the love that God had for his people. Okay, so that's the bread of the presence. Again, you have to read Brant Petrie's book. Stunning. So this is the bread that's referred to in 1 Samuel 21, which is the story that Dallas opens. So Dallas is a fantastic teacher. So why does he open this episode up with this scene? Because most people might not know it. Every Jew would have known this story. Many of us might not be familiar with the story. And so Dallas is going to reference it here because Jesus is going to reference it later in the episode. And so for it to really have the weight that it needs to have, he needs to tell us the story. He's a fantastic teacher. So he opens the episode with this scene. And again, again it's 1 Samuel 21, David at Nob. And it's almost word for word. Um, Amalek says, you know, so David comes in, he's hiding from Saul. He asks for something to eat because he's hungry. Amalek tells him, if I give you this, Saul is going to be angry with me. But he gives it to David. He asks if his men have been abstaining from women, which is one of, so the priests would eat the, the bread of the presence once a week, only if they had abstained from sexual relations. Soldiers also had to abstain from sexual relations. So David says, yes, my men are pure from sexual relations. He gives them the bread to eat. He says, if I find out, if Saul finds out that I've done this, um, I'm going to be in trouble. And sure enough, a few chapters later, it's a tragedy. Saul executes Amalek and everybody, like everybody associated. The only person who escapes is Abiathar, his son, escapes and then later will become high priest. Okay, so this is a, this is a very important scene for later in our episode. If you will humor me, I want to take a little side journey in reference to this, because this story is told in the Synoptic Gospels. So we have it in Matthew 12, 1 to 8, Mark 2, 25 to 26, and Luke 6. And in these verses, this is where we find the story that Dallas is going to tell. Now, interestingly enough, in the Gospels, we have the picking grain on the Sabbath, followed by the man with the withered hand. Dallas switches them. I don't know why. Um... I think I would have kept the order, but he had obviously had a reason for switching them. Um, and we'll talk about that depiction of the man with the withered hand in a bit because I, I wasn't entirely happy with that depiction. Um, and so what um, I want to take a side note to talk about this because in Matthew and Luke, we have that story. In Mark, we have the story, but Jesus specifically says when Abiathar, so he's referencing this story, says, to the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees are mad. His disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. This would have been considered work. Now, it wouldn't be considered work in the Torah, 
it was considered work in the rabbinic law, like the rabbinic interpretation, okay? So they're not disobeying Torah, they're disobeying the rabbinic interpretation of Torah. And so when Jesus says, close to what he says in The Chosen, although in The Chosen, again, this is just kind of an interesting side tangent. In The Chosen, he says, um, when Amalek was priest. In Mark, he says, when Abiathar is high priest. Now, this is actually a big controversy with scripture scholars because Jesus seems to be wrong. He makes a historical comment. He makes a historical reference. It says when this happened, when Abiathar was high priest. That's not the case. Um, Amalek was a priest. He was not a priest in Jerusalem. He wasn't high priest at this point. He was a priest in Nob. And so is Jesus wrong? Was Mark wrong? Was Mark's source Peter wrong? Was, is the Bible wrong? Whatever, it doesn't come out good, right? Like none of these things can be wrong, right? So at least one famous Protestant scripture scholar actually became agnostic over this controversy because he was, he was so, he was hanging so tight on the literal interpretation and the inerrancy of scripture that he became an agnostic over this point. Was Jesus wrong? Is scripture wrong? How can we reconcile this? Um, so there's, there's a couple facts. Number one, in 1 Samuel, Amalek is priest when David enters the sanctuary. Abiathar is Amalek's son, um, although he was a priest when this incident occurred because it's his father and he's priest. Um, he wasn't high priest and he wasn't in Jerusalem, right? They were in Nope. Um, he becomes high priest later when Saul murders his father. Um, now, so, so one, I think one, um, there's a couple different explanations for this. One, we have other times in scripture where fathers and sons' names were juxtaposed and they were considered, they were called by the same name. So it could be that they were each known as Amalek and Abiathar and that their names were just used interchangeably. Um, we also have it that says most of our scripture translations say when Abiathar, epi, the Greek word actually means concerning. And so Jesus could be saying concerning Abiathar. Now, why is this important? Could it be that Jesus specifically points out Abiathar? Not that he's getting it wrong. Not that he doesn't know who is priest in this story. Could he be specifically referencing Abiathar? Why? Because Abiathar, so Amalek is killed. Abiathar becomes high priest in Jerusalem. Eventually, Abiathar is, is, is deposed as priest. He's the only historical instance of a high priest being deposed. And it marks the end of the priesthood of the house of Eli. So if you remember the story of Samuel, Samuel's living in the temple with Eli. Eli's sons are, are wicked. And so the Lord tells Eli, because he does not reign in his wicked sons, because his sons have been abusive of the people, the priesthood will leave his house. He will no longer have the priesthood because he's abused it. His sons have abused it. Could Jesus be referencing the end of this priesthood of the house of Eli, the, the deposition, the, 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 the end of a priesthood? I mean, this was radical. The house of Zadok, Zadok became high priest after this, switched houses. Um, could Jesus intentionally be pointing this out, making this reference, because there's going to be a even more radical change in 
the priesthood. Okay, that seemed like a very long tangent, but I think it's really important when we look at what's happening in this story. Could Jesus intentionally be speaking about a change of priesthood, reminding them that Abiathar didn't stay priest? Why? Because the house of Eli had abused the people. The house of, of Eli had not been good shepherds, and so they were replaced. Okay, so... Before we get to the point when they're walking through the, the wheat, because again, Dallas switches them, um, you know, he goes to the synagogue and I'm, I think what they're setting up is that he's going to go to this, this synagogue um, because it's small, it's in this small town. Because what they're setting up at the end of the episode is that now we have reason for another group to be mad at Jesus, who these synagogue officials in this little town are like, let's make a name for our little town by bringing a case against this man. So it seems like it's confusing and all these priests and all this political machinations, but that's what, ha like, it's not like one day all of a sudden they were like, hey, let's kill Jesus of Nazareth, right? So I think Dallas is very artfully and skillfully setting up what leads to Jesus's arrest, what leads to all this controversy against this, this prophet, right? The son of God. Um, so he goes to this small town, um, I personally had a problem with Jesus kind of just going in and interrupting. It, I don't know. Like, honestly, I don't know how synagogue worship would have looked at that time. Um, so I don't know whether people would have just come and gone and come and gone. But, like, it just seemed like Jesus, like, went in and interrupted and then made this big scene. Um, now, the way it's depicted, especially, like, Luke 6, it says, like, he had the man stand up in front of everybody and cured him and it, he did make a scene but and in mark it says very clearly that he's angry right he's angry at their hardness of heart and so he here heals this man at you know he's angry right so i'm not saying that i disagree with his anger like him being depicted as being angry or his depiction of like making a scene but i just don't know i feel like when jesus made a scene it was because others made a scene, if that makes sense. Like, I, I feel like um, Jesus did this, like, he talked to the Pharisees in the field. First of all, why are Pharisees, like, it seemed like they were must be spying on him for him them to, like, see him in the field. I'm talking about in Scripture, right? In Scripture, they suddenly see him in the field. Then he's in the synagogue. And so they're mad about the field, and they bring it up in the synagogue. And that's where his hardness of heart comes, and that's where he heals the man with the wither hand. This is totally my opinion, but I just didn't, I just don't know if I liked the depiction of Jesus, like going in and making a scene. And I just don't know whether he would have done it in the same way, kind of unprovoked. Whereas in the scriptures, it seems to say he made a scene because he was provoked already by their questions about the Sabbath. Whereas this, it seems like he's like, I'm going to go in and make a scene. And I just, I mean, we know that Jesus angered people. Um, we know that he stirred the pot. I'm not sure I entirely agree with this interpretation of him stirring the pot. Um, I also know that kindness is a virtue, and it seems like Jesus would attempt to be kind and not interrupt the, syn the synagogue. And then when he was challenged, be like, I'm, I'm curing this guy, you know. So those are just my opinions completely. Okay, Jesus references um, this rabbinic idea that David also references at the beginning. Um, and again, my Hebrew is not very good, but it's Pequok Nefesh. Again, don't like, 
don't quote my Hebrew. Um, but um, the you had David referencing at the beginning. I don't know whether this Pequak Nefesh would have been a thing in 1000 BC. I don't know. Um, but basically, it's a rabbinic um, idea that saving a human life takes precedence over everything else. So you can look it up. You can you can see that it's a very um, common Jewish way of thought. And that's what David references, that in this case, saving a human life triumphs over the rules concerning the showbread. And Jesus references it indirectly by saying, what's better to do on the Sabbath, to save a life or to, to, to kill it, right? Um, and so it comes from the Torah in Leviticus 18, 5. The Leviticus, the law says, you shall keep my statutes and my laws, which a person shall do and shall live by them. And in the Talmud, they interpret that by saying, live by God's statutes and do not die by them. This was an interpretation made famous um, in the Talmud by a man named Shmuel. <laughs> not the same as our friend Shmuel, another Shmuel. Um, as I said in the last episode, these people need different names. Um, so, so a Jew should live by the Jewish law as long as it gives life, right? If it gives death, you don't live by the law. Does that make sense? So it's the, it's that idea that like the law should give you life, should not bring death. And that's what Jesus is saying in Luke six, right? Um, so in this scene, he, or like Mark two, let's, that's what thing I have, I have, um, marked, right? And so he's like, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill it? And they were silent. Why does he say this? Because he's reading their hearts and he knows they're, they want to kill him. He's reading their hearts and saying, you in your minds right now are trying to find a play, way to kill me. You've been spying on my followers in this wheat field. Now, no, this is in scripture because the events are switched. But you're spying on me. You're trying to trap me. So you're spending your Sabbath rest doing evil trying to kill me and condemning me for doing good. Okay. Um, and so, so I think that's an important thing that what, so there's a couple different, um, things that Jesus is doing by, by all of this, by breaking, and I'm putting that in quotes, breaking the Sabbath law. I want to say there's three things that Jesus is doing, whether it's by healing the man with the withered hand or by allowing his men to pick grain on the Sabbath. Um, he's four things because it's partly he's, it, he's using piqua nefesh, right? Like it's better to do good on the Sabbath that the law should never endanger my life. Okay. Um, and they saw this as like rescuing a child that was in danger, right? Um, breaking down a door. If someone is locked in a room, extinguishing a fire, right? This is piqua nefesh, right? Like I can do these things, even though they're considered work because they're saving a life. Now he is coming to not save us just from these earthly dangers, but to save us from spiritual harm. And so what he's going to say is, yeah, was this man's life endangered because he had withered hand? No, but I can do good on the Sabbath, right? Um, so I think in, in the grain field, again, when his, when his men are walking through the grain field, this wasn't a law found in Torah. This was a law that was an interpretation by the rabbis. Jesus is not just disregarding the rules, okay? Yes, he's invoking Pico Nefesh, whether or not he says those words. Um, but I think he's doing three things. Number one, he's interpreting the law by the spirit of the law, right? By why was the law given? The law was given to 
sanctify. The law was given to make holy. The law was given us, given to us so that we would keep the covenant and be the sons and daughters of God, right? That's why we praise the law in the Old Testament. And so we have to remember that what Christ has come to do is to interpret the law correctly. And that's what he's doing in this case, right? So rather than condemning his apostles because they're picking grain on the Sabbath, what is more concerning to the Lord is that these men are plotting to kill him on the Sabbath, okay? So he's interpreting the law, not by the extra heavy rule of the rabbis, but by the spirit of the law, why the law was given. So that's one thing he's doing here. Number two, he's revealing the new law that's going to be greater. So he's not abandoning the old law. He's fulfilling the old law with the new law, right? Something greater than the temple is here. That's what he, they, he tells them. What's greater than the temple? Well, he'll tell him, he'll tell him that eventually he's going to say, the temple's my body, right? Because he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So he's beginning to, to show that there's something greater than the temple here, that the Lord is here. The Lord is Lord of the Sabbath. He made these rules not to imprison men, but to free them, right? We weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us, to free us. And so he's revealing the new law, right? He's slowly revealing there's something greater. And connected to that, he's revealing the new priesthood. He's claiming a priesthood for himself and his disciples. So we see this with the bread of the presence, right? He is going to bring a new law. He's going to bring a new tabernacle. He's going to bring a new temple. He's going to bring a new bread of the presence, which we see in Brant Petrie's book is, of course, the Eucharist. And so when he's walking through the field, he makes a reference um, in scripture. He makes this reference to David. So it's interesting in the Old Testament, David is often depicted as a priest. He wears priestly garments. It says he wears a linen ephod. He makes sacrifice. He does priestly things. David is depicted as both priest and king in the Old Testament. And that's something we often forget. It's something that Brandt picks out in his book. Why is this important? Because David was a priest because he was the head of his household. And before the Levitical priest, all men as head of their households were priests. The Levitical priesthood replaces that. How is David a priest? We see it in the Psalms. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He says that in the Psalms, right? So he's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? But in Genesis, Melchizedek offers bread and wine. David is acting as priest. He eats the bread of the presence as a priest. Jesus's apostles will be priests according to the order of Melchizedek, which we see in Hebrews is the new priesthood that replaces the priesthood of Levi. So Christ is introducing his priests here. He's introducing his apostles. In Matthew 12, 5, he says, you know, the, the, he says something interesting. He says the priests broke the Sabbath, profaned the Sabbath. What's he referring to? He's referring to the fact that you'd make the showbread, you'd eat the showbread, you'd sacrifice animals on the Sabbath. You would work on the Sabbath if you were a priest. He says, Jesus points out, he says, the priests profane the Sabbath, but are guiltless because they're priests. What's he saying? My disciples are priests too, and they're guiltless. They're guiltless because they are priests. They're exempt because they're working on the Sabbath, okay? So hopefully that makes sense. Um, I think it's a very, very important story that um, depicts far more than just, oh, he's come to get rid of rules. 
That's a very, 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 I think, shallow, narrow view of this story. He's not come because the rules are bad. He's come to show us why the rules exist. He's come to remind us of the spirit, and he's come to show us that he's come to fulfill. Not that the Sabbath goes away, but that the Sabbath is fulfilled. Not that the bread of presence goes away, but that the bread of presence is fulfilled in a greater way than we can ever imagine. So this um, this episode probably brought up a lot of questions about the Sabbath for you. Like, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? That's why I started with that question before we, we started today. How do you keep the Sabbath? It's a good reminder to us that just because we don't have the strict, narrow interpretation of the Sabbath that they had at the time with the rabbinic law, we still keep holy the Lord's day. And so we're still called to keep Sunday holy, to set that apart, that it's not just another day of the weekend, but that we go to Mass, we worship the Lord, and we try as much as possible, if we can, to abstain from work. Now, we can still say that we have that piqua nefesh, right? That, that if you're a doctor, right, there's certain times where you have to work, and the Lord would allow you to do that because it's better to save a life than lose it, right? And so there's certain industries that you have to work. But it's an individual reminder to us that we individually look at when do, when do I do work that I don't need to do on Sunday? Am I really having true leisure? Am I spending time with my friends and family? Am I worshiping the Lord? Am I spending some extra time in prayer? Remembering that it's just not another day of the weekend, but this is really a day to set aside for the Lord. So hopefully you can see that these stories aren't just, oh, you know, when we, when, we, when we look at the story, it's not just like, oh, the Sabbath, Sabbath rules are bad. No, they just need to be interpreted well, and they need to be um, lived in the spirit of the law. So the, um, the, the homework I would give to this, this episode is to read Isaiah 58, 1 to 14. And in Isaiah 58, 1 to 14, I think we see both storylines in this unlawful episode, both storylines come together. The mercy shown to Mary Magdalene and the reason for the Sabbath rest, the spirit of the law, right? It's not that rules are bad. It's not that we can live however we want to live. It's not that sin isn't bad, right? Just because Mary's forgiven doesn't mean that what she did was right, but that she's welcomed back in mercy. Um, and so do we forget the purpose of the rules? Do we make rules and put them as burdens on people rather than seeing that the rules are meant to bring us closer to God? And so when you read Isaiah 58, the Lord is condemning those who fast only to quarrel and fight. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose? Um, so he's saying like, you guys are fasting but you're going out and beating your servants, right? You're fasting, but you are not, you know, you're pointing the finger, speaking wickedness. Um, if, if you're sinning while you're fasting, you've missed the whole point. Is not this the fast that I choose, he says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring homeless poor into your house to cover the naked, right? He desires the corporal works of mercy. And so what does the Lord desire? The Lord desires mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? It's not that he doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires sacrifice with the proper intention. So, you know, you can fast and pray all day, but if you're neglecting the needs of your neighbor, are you really growing, growing closer to God, right? 
you can point fingers at people's sins and ask for justice, but if you're acting self-righteously and then gossiping and committing sins of calumny and detraction, what's the point, right? Um, and so I think it's a, it's, this episode is a great reminder to us to examine our own lives. Are we forgiving the Marys of our life? Are we acting with mercy? And are we living out these rules out of a desire to, you know, be the best rule keeper to point out everybody else disobeying the rules? Or are we living the rules to grow closer to God? So I'm going to look over your comments right now. If you have any questions, um, hopefully that cleared up some things about this episode. But again, unlawful, I think, kind of brings back both of those storylines that that um, we should desire to welcome people back in mercy, even when they break the law, right? Even when they break our hearts, like Mary broke Jesus's heart, we welcome them back in mercy. And we also remember why these rules exist, to bring us closer to Christ, right? Wendy says, don't be the church lady, right? Don't be that person that, you know, says her rosary while thinking terrible thoughts about people or gossiping, right? Oh, pray for so-and-so because so-and-so left her husband and then so-and-so is having an affair, right? Don't be that person, right? Um, God doesn't desire our our gossip, right? He doesn't desire even our fasting if it makes us a worse person, right? Um, so I'm just kind of... Um, looking over your comments to see if anybody else has questions or um i agree jesus lacked a little motivation for his anger and i think it's a if they would have switched it back and had him in the fields beforehand i but i don't know i don't know why he made that decision i'm sure he had a reason to, to make that decision um i think dallas said something about how they seem to be talking down to the crippled man um i definitely think there's this idea of like lifting up the lowly right christ does that again and again and again those who are neglected those who are you know like they say like his life isn't in danger you shouldn't do this and it's like listen this guy has a crippled hand like have some mercy on him right um yes jackie the change in the priesthood that's yes so we talked about that after that so yes matthew still doesn't get who jesus is why he asked why they're getting upset about the son of man phrase it could just be that it's not necessarily that matthew doesn't understand that jesus is the messiah but that he just doesn't get the reference to daniel so he could just be missing um, that Old Testament reference to to Daniel. I don't. It might not necessarily be that Matthew doesn't understand who Christ is. Um, okay. Any last questions or thoughts? Sometimes it takes a while for them to come in. Um, so I'm just going to be kind of like making sure that I'm not missing something because every once in a while I'll, I'll sign off and then somebody will say something and I'll have just missed it. Ooh, yes. Yeah. So Philip is one of my favorite characters, Dan says, and this was the first time he shows a little anger when he contemplates breaking out John. So we didn't talk about that, but this is the episode where, um, you know, they find out that John's been imprisoned and we have them kind of like we have Simon going back to his old zealot ways, right? And wanting to break him out and Philip's angry and he kind of wants to break him out. And then he thinks, no, that's not right. Um, and so we have kind of this beginning of this stirring up. We have Andrew, we'll see it more in the next episode, but we have Andrew really, this is really affecting Andrew. And so it's going to cause some doubt in Andrew. It's going to cause some, 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 some issues with Andrew that he's not going to take to the Lord right away and that he's going to stew about it. Yes. So yes, Jesus is worshiping in the synagogue. He would have done this as a faithful Jew. We saw him earlier kind of reading from the scroll 
we have not seen him reading from the scroll of, the, of Isaiah which, when he goes back to Nazareth. So hopefully we'll see that scene at some point when he goes back home um, and reads and tells them that Isaiah has been fulfilled in their hearing. That's one of my favorite scripture verses. And so I hope that they we get that later as well. Um, okay. So thanks for joining me. And again, this was season two, episode six. Next uh, Thursday, we will be looking at episode seven. So we have two more episodes left of season two kind of wrapping up, um, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. So join us next week as we, or sorry, join us on Thursday as we look at episode seven that I, the name of it escapes me right now. And um, it should be a good discussion. So thanks for joining us. As always, if you can push that like button, subscribe to the channel, tell your friends about this. And if they can't catch us live on YouTube, they can find me also Joan's Take on the Chosen on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So they can catch up if um, they need to catch up on old episodes. So thank you so much. Happy Feast of the Assumption. Remember in your prayers to pray for the people of Haiti, to pray for the people of Afghanistan and all those people who are suffering in our world, all those people desire, that need God's mercy and love, that need his, um, his protection right now as they're suffering. Pray for those who are less fortunate than us. And make sure you celebrate the Feast of the Assumption today. So have a nice dinner, have a nice drink, and uh, celebrate Our Lady and ask for her intercession as we continue into this next week. So God bless you all.